Get down with D&D. Yeah, you know me. Get down with D&D. Yeah, you know me. Get down with D&D. Yeah, you know me. Who's down with D&D? Get down with D&D. Yeah, you know me. Get down with D&D. Yeah, you know me. I'm down with D&D. Yeah, you know me. Who's down with D&D? Are you ready to get down with some D&D? I know I am. I am joined, as I am always joined, by the modest, motivated, and maverick Mad Wizard Merwin. What is up, Sean? I am I am at a, at a loss right now because in two days I have to pack to go to NukeCon in Omaha, Nebraska. Although by the time people are hearing this, I will hopefully be back from NukeCon, and I'm sure I had a wonderful time. But there's just so much going on, and I'm trying to juggle all these things in my head that... I'm I'm a little flustered, but I'm going to pull it all together, Chris. I'm going to pull it all together to do another podcast with you. I have faith in you, Sean. I have nothing but faith that you will manage to pull it all together. I, I know that you can carry me if I don't, so that's even better. I mean, my faith has been misplaced before in people, but I feel like it's not in you. <laughs> well, I'm glad to hear that. <laughs> I will do my best to prove you wrong. <laughs> uh, all right. Let's do some announcements before we get into our part two of the Moonshade Isles. So uh, there was an amazingly good D&D Beyond article called Creating Villain Hero Bonds in Waterdeep Dragon Heist by James Hake. Oh, my God, is this a good article. I suggest everybody go read it. What did you think of it? I thought it was awesome because at the time that I read it, I was already thinking about um, ways to deepen your campaigns through these different bonds. And, and what I had said was, you know, anything that you create for your game as a DM, whether it's a setting, whether it's even, uh, you know, NPCs, villains, even the, like if you create a new class or a new race or anything like that, those are all tools for you to deepen your campaign by making these connections with, with the characters. Even if it's, you know, even if it's just a town that you're making, um, if you can make that connection with the characters in some way, you're just deepening the story for them. And then as I'm thinking all of this, I read this article, which really nailed, um, even in a better way than I could have said it, what I was trying to get at. So what James says is by tying together your heroes and villains stories, you give the players a reason to interact with their rivals on a personal level. By adding personal tension to the mix, you raise the stakes of your adventure and you could replace adventure with campaign there. And then he goes on to give um, the four main potential villains for Dragon Heist and different ways uh, that what their goals are and how you can tie your character's goals to that. Now, the so for me, storytelling is all about the characters. Mm-hmm. I love settings. I love plots. I love all that stuff. But none of that means anything if you don't have interesting characters that you can relate to or jump in on or or really uh, sink your teeth into. And in a lot of role-playing game adventures and such, there are often really cool characters and whatnot that you can look at and be like, that's a neat character, that's a neat character, but there's no way to get this kind of uh, tied-in-ness of the mm-hmm. char- of the villains and the heroes, and uh, James Hake actually gives pretty much a methodology for us to now look at and utilize if we want to to make this work mm-hmm. a-, a way to actually go about m- taking characters, the heroes, and tying them to villains, and what to look for in your villains to in order to do that work. And there's always the possibility that your players don't care. And that's okay. They may just want to play the generic hero who kills all the bad guys and gets the treasure. And that's okay. But even if you use this method, 
you're at least giving them the option of creating this cool tension between the characters and the villains. Um, if they don't pick up on it, that's okay. You've at least given it your effort to make it work that way. It's true. And um, like I said, this is one of the most clearly defined visions of this idea that I've seen written for people running games. And just as a reminder, James Hake was, uh, you know, a contributing writer to Dragon Heist. Mm-hmm. So he not only, um, you know, gives us a great explanation of how you can do this. He was thinking about this as he wrote the adventure, obviously. Yeah, so, obviously. um, you know, so it's even got that much more of, of a, um, of a driving force behind it because he was one of the writers. Which I appreciate. I mean, I'm glad that he took the time to like talk about how some of his process for th- and thought and how he thought about things. Yep. All right. Let's move on to the next thing. The Mad Wizards Menagerie Patreon is live. So it's going really well so far. We, we hope it mm-hmm. does better because we want to do some more stuff. But um, we're currently at $127 and 41 patrons. And there's a lot of people that are looking for those um, those uh, virtual tabletop tokens and, and such. And uh, virtual tabletop tokens and also print tokens. And those will be, uh, be coming around soon. There's also, you know... Um, some people that are there looking to hang out with the Mad Wizard at at the Archmage's retreat too. Mm-hmm. So that's a thing. We'll have to really start setting that stuff up, Sean. I know it's it's time to get serious about this. I mean, we were already serious about it. <laughs> yes, I'm I'm well aware. We've been spending a great deal of time and thought and energy on this. So, you know, after only less than forty eight hours, we're we're at one hundred and twenty some dollars. So that's great. We would really love to be able to give give people more and you know for one or two bucks if we get enough people uh interested and into this we could be giving out adventures we could be giving out uh more monsters and spells and magic items and a whole bunch of different things that the mad wizard could talk about and if we get beyond the goals that we have already you know then we're getting into an area where we can start bringing in um other writers and other artists to to give stuff because then we'll we'd have the revenue to to give them a little you know, to do that. So, you know, that's the long-term plan for this is to make it something where not only, you know, are we at Encoded Designs doing some writing and the art and the layout and so on, but we would love to make this a community-driven thing as well. Um, we just need to get the word out that this is going to be a great thing once once we've got, got it firing on all cylinders. So, you know, if you're interested, even if you're not sure, just check it out. Look at the sample that we've put up. See if you like it, spread the word, and hopefully we can really turn this thing up another notch and make it into a really, really illustrious place for people to share their stories as well. Absolutely. Especially their stories about monsters and the Mad Wizard. Yep. Number three, the AL Eberron campaign not only is starting, has started. In mm-hmm. fact, What's Past His Prologue is out there, and Murder in the Skyway by Greg Marks is out there. By the way, What's Past His Prologue is by Alan Patrick. Yep. Um, I picked up both of these. I've already started reading through Murder in the Skyway. I was a little surprised. The Murder in the Skyway adventure has the same pretty much beginning as the um, the adventure that came in the original uh, Eberron book. Right. Where there's actually a murder after a party on a skyway. I'm like, I don't know. Like, I, I'm, I, I like a little bit of nostalgia too, but I was wondering if they might want to do something different. I'm now like curious as to read more of it. Yeah. I, I think it's, I think it is a little bit of nostalgia, but I think it's also a great, 
it's a great way to catch the imagination of people that didn't read that you know original thing. And remember, this is going to be a, a full campaign um, for levels one to ten when it's all through. So this is just that first taste of what is Sharn like, what is an Eberron campaign set in Sharn like. So if you want to get that noir feel, that's a that's a very good way to bring in uh, new players and new characters in a in a very vivid way. And I am starting to put together my group to run this campaign. So I will be running this and I will be uh, sharing my my thoughts about these adventures in this campaign as as I run more and more of these. And I, I want to talk a little bit about what's past this prologue by Alan Patrick, too. While this is an, an adventure in this in this uh, series, it is a little bit different because you play pre-generated zero level characters. And at the end of the adventure, those characters are quote unquote retired. So you can't continue playing them because they become NPCs that you will meet in the, the continuing, uh, adventures. That's pretty slick. And like I said, I'm running it. So you'll hear me talk about this in the future. So I don't want to give away too much more than that. Other than if you're interested in Eberron or even if you're just interested in a new and different way of playing D and D, you know, check that one out. It comes with those six, uh, zero level pre-generated characters. So you can play it in a different way. Maybe you've never played with pre-generated characters before. That can be a heck of a lot of fun. Um, so give that a try and let us know if you do play it. Let us know what you think. And then when Chris shares his play, we can, we can talk about that. Absolutely. I totally will, too. Okay. Let's talk about our main topic, which is the Moonshay Isles Part 2. We're going to talk about power groups and player organizations today from the Moonshay uh, Isles Player's Guide put out by Baldwin Games. Mm-hmm. All right. Let's uh, let's start with the power groups, man. Let's talk about the Omnian Occupiers. So the Omnian Occupiers are led by Lady Erliza. Mm-hmm. Right up front, she's a vampire. Nobody really knows that. They call her Bloody Erliza, not because she's a vampire, but because of her brutal handling of a couple of Volk rebellions. By the way, I figured out that the F-F-O-L-K, the F-F is actually, like, sounds like a V. Who knew, right? I believe that's supposed to be pronounced Volk, not Folk. That's interesting. I will probably not be able to do that because my brain has been encoded to say Folk for so long, but that is a very interesting uh, interesting point. Apparently, it's Welsh, I think. Right. Eliza, she has a. Uh, when we talk about these power groups, we're going to be talking about a little bit about who they are and then what they want, right? So, um, like she wants to be reborn, like as a human, and believes that the city of Ser- of Carador uh, and Seraphel is the answer to her problems. Right. So, not only is she a representative of the merchants of Am in their business dealings, and when we say business dealings, we're talking about it in the worst possible sense of kind of like a colony being exploited by its home country you know mercantilism in a mercantilism kind of way um so they're really decimating this island and want to spread to decimate it more but she herself has this personal goal of of being reborn on this other island so there's there's kind of a dual story going on there and you know going back to talking about James Hake's article you can tie these characters your your own characters into this either through this mercantilism story or through the the Lady Erliza's personal story. Actually, it's a really easy one because um, Erliza, she is a business person, right? Businesswoman. Mm-hmm. She wants business to flourish, but her idea is to do it in the, the terrible corporate ideological way. The, and, and by, I don't mean corporations are terrible. I just mean in, in a terrible corporate ideological way. Right. 
player characters are often mercenaries, right? They're looking for wealth and things like that. But that doesn't mean they have to be evil about going about acquiring their wealth. Mm. So like that is the like they're both business ventures, but one of them is about, you know, evil and one of them is about good. Right. And and she, you know, if you carry that theme a little bit further, she is literally as a vampire a bloodsucker. That's true. <laughs> but also in her dealings with in her political slash business dealings, she is also a bloodsucker. Um by just draining all the natural resources out of this area and sending it to to Am for for their uh benefit for their profit. So it's it's really a clever dual symbol, if you will. Very true. As we talk about more of these organizations, these power groups, you'll notice that a lot of them they have an ideological like overtone and then they have like some faces that go along with that that show that off. Mm-hmm. It's something to think about when if you're making these things for yourself. Right. So the Druids of the Earth Mother. Now, the Druids of the Earth Mother, they seek to maintain the balance of nature and preserve the power of the Earth Mother on the Moonshot Isles. They've been around for like 1500 years. They're loosely organized. They meet up a bunch of times a year to, to talk over a variety of different issues. And the senior of these druids, they tend the moon wells there. That's pretty much their power base. Mm-hmm. They had three great druids, but it seems like they only have two at this point because there was one on Gwyneth, but now there's no one on Gwyneth because the Fae own Gwyneth. Is that, a, that seems to be about right. Yeah. The, the original, well, the, I mean, since it's been around for so long, um, the, the original great druid was, you know, founded centuries ago. Yeah. Yeah. But since then, the great druid who in, in modern times was there disappeared. So another great druid was named, uh, Antola Pylark, uh, and she was helping drive away the Feywild incursion on Aloran. And then another great druid was named on Moray. So now where there used to be just one great druid, there are now at least two. And there are rumors that the original great druid is still alive on Gwyneth. Just she has uh, shielded herself away from anyone. See, that's fascinating. So there are lots of different great druids. So this loosely based organization is kind of like, I don't want to call them like a, a church. Because they're really not that, they're not that organized. organized. Right. Yeah. They're, they're, they are vessels through which the Earth Mother works. And so you will find them near these, um, moon wells because those are the portals by which the power of the Earth Mother comes through to moon, the moon chase. So there's a, you know, there's a problem. In the sense that this group is very powerful, but they're not very, um, they're not all pointing in the right direction or one direction, right? They're, they're all off doing their own thing. And if they ever got together and all started pushing their resources in a certain political direction, um, they would wield a lot of power, but they're not likely to do that just because of the nature of who they are. That's true. All right. Uh, let's talk about the Giants of Oman. We have a, a, a number of things to get through, and I don't want us to go too long. So, um, sure. The Giants of Oman, they're the Fomorians. Mm-hmm. They are run or led by Queen Kaname of the Fairy Realm of uh, Vor Thamil. Mm-hmm. And they really want to expand, but they're stuck on the island of Oman. Uh, they just can't get off the island. And their big goal 
right now is to try to find a way to get off of that island and, and spread their influence around the Moonshe Isles. Um, part of that has them entering an alliance with the Broken Stone Vale lycanthropes from the from the um, Feywild. Mm-hmm. So uh, that's pretty much what they're doing, right? Right. There, there are two ways they could get off the island. One is building ships, but they don't have the resources, the skill, the knowledge, the patience to do that. The second would be through portals, either portals within this realm or portals from the Feywild back to this realm in some way. And uh, some of the adventures that will be coming out from Bald Man Games in the next few weeks to months, you know, talk about some of these portals and some of the ways that they're trying to to spread their power at the moment. Yeah, a lot of a lot of their stuff, it seems to have to do with the deep shades, too. And one other thing about this is these Formorians are obviously giants, but they don't associate or represent the other kinds of giants in the world. You know, most of the giants that you think of are in the mountains. You know, if they're fire giants, they're from the volcanoes. If they're frost giants, they're from the north or from the land of ice and so on. Um, these Fremorians are a separate beast. So even though they are officially represented as the, the giant subtype, they are a different breed than the other giants. It gives it a, a nice little uh, twist on them, right? Because they're kind of like corru- they're kind of like twisted and corrupted. And yep. <laughs> I wasn't trying to be punny. I really wasn't. It just happened <laughs> to come out that way. Yep. Uh, they're corrupted. They don't look exactly. They're they're kind of deformed in a lot of ways. That's what the Formorians are. Yep. All right. Let's move on to House Kendrick. So the High King Diedrich Kendrick. Uh, he's got two things going on. One, he wants his son back from Lady Eliza. Mm-hmm. So that's a thing, very yep. personal thing. And the second thing is that he wants to reclaim his lands and restore his family's glory and prestige because uh, House Kendrick, their their home base used to be on where Seraphal is. Mm-hmm. And then they got kicked out by the Fae when they showed up. So uh, by the Lachey of uh, Seraphal. So they're, they've been depleted in a lot of ways. And they've basically had a lot of uh, like, we're humans and we're in charge and this, that, and the other thing. And then you got kicked out and kicked around and beat down. And, and now you're just not nearly as tough as you used to be. And it's kind of embarrassing. Yeah. Yeah. And, and so, you know, in this whole realm of nature and, and the earth mother, there's this tension because house Kendrick does revere the earth mother, Mm -hmm. but they're also a political organization so they have not necessarily the same goals as the clerics or the uh, the druids of the Earth Mother. So you would never say that they're enemies because they're not. You would say that they're allies because they are. But House Kendrick is is a different animal than than the people who simply want nature to be nature. It's not something that's brought up a lot in the books or adventures. But it's something that's there, the the natural world versus the political world. Mm-hmm. And, you know, what what they would, would do to regain that power, you know, to what lengths they might go. I think of it as kind of King Arthur is King Darid and Merlin is the forces of magic, the forces of nature, the forces that people don't understand. So there's... There's a connection between them, but that connection isn't always moving in the same direction. They're not working together like Merlin and and uh, Arthur did at all. Right. So, you know, it's it's this interesting dynamic of kind of the Anglo-Celtic world where 
you would normally think of the two things as the same thing, but they're not the same thing. Not at all. Right. It's that uh, that dichotomy, right? Like it's similar, but not the same. Exactly. Yeah. Yep. So that's a, that's where House Kendrick sort of sits in this whole power struggle. And they just – they have kind of like dealings with everybody because they're – they're in a lot of ways the the face of the Volk um, mm-hmm. in the world. That mm-hmm. between House Kendrick and the Earth Mother, that's pretty much the faces of the Volk in, in the Moonshay Isles. Yep. Uh, let's move on to the Lachey of Seraphal. So, the the big face of this organization or this power group is High Lady Orodolf. Mm-hmm. And she's only here for a prophecy. About a hundred years ago, she shows back up by rising her city. Uh, was it, it was called Kara, when I Carador? yeah Carador, uh, out of the middle of an ocean or out of the middle of a lake mm-hmm. in um in Seraphal, and they start taking everything over around them. Um, but she's only here because she can only die in the mortal realm, but she must do so to save two worlds from a howling disease spread by a beast lord. Yeah. So that's her reasoning for being here. I'm pretty sure she kind of doesn't want to be here because she doesn't want to die, but she's doing what's necessary. Yeah. Uh, yeah, and aside from that overarching reason, she's currently in a fight right now with the forces of the Unseelie Court located in Citadel Umbra. Right, and and those those things are not unmutual. <laughs> I think that's the horrible way of saying it, because the things that are happening in the Feywild, where she is from, are being mirrored on in the Moonshays. Mm-hmm. One of the reasons that she came back was because you know she of this prophecy that she will die, but by dying, she will save, you know, her people. But it's not just on the moon in the moon shades that, that that's true. It's also in the Feywild. That's true. So, um, you know, staying in the Feywild would not have saved. It would have saved her life, but not saved her people. Yeah. And what kind of life is that? Right? Exactly. So, you know, so that that's why she came back. And it's an important one thing I want to point out, and I've had people ask before, is, you know, the Earth Mother as a figure is is a representation of the Feywild, and that is not true at all. The Feywild is not nature in terms of what the Earth Mother. The Earth Mother is about, um, you know, this calm, normalized um, peace in nature. And, you know, there are aspects of war, there are aspects of death, there is brutality in nature, but not to a, a, an outrageous degree. You know, wolves will kill sheep, but wolves do not kill every sheep. Well, we're talking about the cycle of, of life, right? Right. Like, the Earth Mother is all about that kind of stuff. Yep. So, the Feywild is not nature. The Feywild is not the perfect aspect of nature. It is a perversion of the natural world you know fey are not quote-unquote natural a, a deer in the woods is natural in the fey wild that deer becomes a beast that will kill you right yeah absolutely. so so it's important to remember that distinction between what nature is and what the fey wild represents it's an interesting discussion like maybe that's an episode we should do at some point in time like let's talk about the fey wild and what it actually is right i mean Yes, I think that's, I love the Feywild exactly for that reason. And so I would love to talk about that. Yeah, that's a good idea. But yeah, so the Feywild is actually a perversion of the natural world. I like that as a, as an ideology. That's so, cool. So, so Lady Orloff and the Lachey, you know, did not come back to restore order to the natural world. Nope. They came back for their own reasons. And 
while they may coincide with the folk and, and the Northlanders want, there is not a natural synergy between them. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. There you go. All right, let's move on to the Northlander Jarls. So Rolt the Wise is the current leader, at least nominally the one that everyone looks to anyway. Mm-hmm. But Rolt is old. Now, his uh, granddaughter, granddaughter, right? Astrid? Mm-hmm. Astrid, yep. Yeah. She's very powerful. She's very charismatic and she's a warrior. And she's probably the next logical choice to lead the Northlanders. But unfortunately, they have a patriarchal society. And not too long ago, there was this woman who rose up called the Storm Maiden who basically wrecked Northlander society in a lot of ways. And uh, a bunch of people are sort of scared of having another female leader. I think they should just let Astrid run the show. That's me, though. But, you know, like, I can, I, I can't even understand why they wouldn't want her. Like, it's just, it's, it seems problematic. Yeah. And, and there's also a part of Astrid that does not believe in one person overseeing all people. She's a little bit more chaotic than that. So even if this was offered to her, it's not clear whether she would accept that mantle in the first place. See, that's interesting. Yeah. But that means that you could just go back to that whole like, well, you know, we'll have a bunch of Jarls, right? And then we will have our council of Jarls every once in a while. And, you know, Astrid would just have the most powerful or influential voice during the council of Jarls. Right. Yeah. I think Astrid is more a person who would think that an individual person can do more to change the world in a positive way than a group of people pretending to be leaders. Sure, I could I could totally do that. All the more reason that she should be in charge. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> also, aside from their own personal uh, struggles, they do have an uneasy peace with the high, the high king at the yep. moment. They they do some there's some raiding going on and some squabbling and this that and the other thing. But like most people have more problems than that, right? Like, and they're pretty far to the north. So yep, uh, some of some of High King Darid's ancestors actually were considered sovereigns of the Northlanders. Um, at some point, the Northlanders did pledge their fealty to um, the, the kings and queens Kendrick. So there's that history um, that draws some people to just want to accept that, whereas other people are pushing it away. Astrid would be one who would push that away and say, we don't need to serve the high king um, as their, as his vassals because we are just as powerful as he is um, as individuals it creates an interesting piece of lore to to lean on when telling stories right oh yeah and if you have characters who are northlanders and you have characters who are folk um, they can still be in the same adventuring party but again you're tying their their beliefs and their bonds and their goals to these contradictory things so that while they can still get along, there's still this tension uh, as the story unfolds. Mm, absolutely. Uh, okay. I think that's all we need to talk about the Northlander Jarls, right? Mm-hmm. All right. Let's talk about the risen cult of Bane pretty quickly. There's not, there's not a whole lot here. Um, so apparently the cult of Bane used to be a thing in the Moonshay Isles. In yep. fact, there was even uh, an aspect of uh, Zvim mm-hmm. that they, that was, pulled up but they got beat down and killed and they're not around anymore but there's like this rumor going around that a new young fanatical leader has started to rebuild the cult and they are rising in power but only the lure elves think that's a thing and everybody else doesn't believe them right yep and i can't really add too much more to that um in the whole 
panoply of different gods that have were weaved in and out of the story of the moon moon uh shays bane was one of those gods so he has a history there yeah and that's what this group is drawing drawing upon all right, let's talk about the Black Blood tribe. So these are Malar revering lycanthropes, and they generally and pretty much hold sway over the island of Moray. Uh, their goal is to bring an avatar, divine servant of Malar, to the Moonshay Isles that can lead them so they can spread lycanthropy everywhere. That's pretty much what they're doing. Uh, did I miss anything else? Nope. The only thing I will add is this goes along with what I was talking about, about the Feywild not being while being savage, not being nature, same thing here. Um, you know, these lycanthropes may seem part of the natural world, but they are just the opposite. They are unnatural. Um, they break this cycle of normal life, normal death, and so on by their curse. So uh, that's where that tension is with the Earth Mother and the worshippers of Malar. Yeah, and one of their more immediate goals would be to spread a lot of their lycanthropy to the Seraphel elves because, you know, having a bunch of fey uh, lycanthropes would be a very big boon to their cause. Yep, and that speaks directly to that prophecy that brought Lady Orloff back to Gwyneth. Yep, that's that's what uh, that's what it seems like, right? That mm-hmm. I mean, I I think you might have a little bit more inside knowledge than I do about these things. Right. Tell me about the Brezel lizard folk tribes. I didn't find, I didn't see them in the book. Well, yeah, they're, they're there and they are a group of disparate tribes that occupy the Bresel March in the center of the island of Moray. So they are right in the center of all these Malar worship, worshiping lycanthropes. Now, some of these lizard folk tribes are totally savage and, yeah, they just kill unthinkingly. Well, some of them, though, are civilized and do deal with um, the folk or the Northlanders who come to the island. And the reason they're important is they could be a key ally in the fight against the Black Blood tribes. If anyone can bring all of these lizard folk tribes together, they become a an important political or military force that could be used in, in that fight. So that's why they're important to to recognize. That is a uh, fascinating. I wonder if they'll pop up in a venture in the future. Yeah, I'm sure that they might. All right, and uh, the last group that we want to talk about is the Corin uh, Archipelago Pirates. Yep. So they don't have a leader. They they if they ever did though, they could be a very powerful military or political force on the seas. In fact, they would give the Northlanders all kinds of trouble because the Northlanders are a little bit like Vikings and they have their own boats and things like that. So I I would imagine that um, the Northlanders probably have one of the more powerful fleets in the Moonshay Isles, but the, if the pirates ever banded together, they would probably have the most powerful fleet. Right. And I just imagine if some charismatic, powerful leader came got all of these pirates together, formed a navy, and allied with the Formorians. Oh, man, that would be devastating. Exactly. Wait a minute, are you talking about like that that one character, uh, Silver and Silver's Pirates? Just saying, uh, with islands, you need a, a navy to to conquer. Pirates have their own navies. Uh, they're, they're just disparate bands of pirates. 
See, Sean, I don't have uh, I don't have the the breadth and depth of knowledge of the Moonshade Isles as you, and I'm also not on the inside like you are about what's going on out there in their in the future dealings. So, like, I can speculate all I want, and I feel like I just made you stutter because I hit on something, but you don't have to say anything. No, no, th- no. I just this is just something that came to me while we were putting together the notes. Oh, okay. This is just a possible tie to if you have your own Moonshade campaign. Th- you know, think about what would happen if that that happened so that would be a great like tier two sort of campaign really would try trying to stop this one powerful pirate leader from bringing all these pirates together all right so those are the the organizations of the power groups Mm -hmm. in the moonshade isles and we still have some time so we'll talk about the player organizations so these are the organizations that will be popping up in the uh, one, you can use them in your own games too, but a lot of them will be popping up and you can have a, be parts of them in the uh, the Baldman Games Moonshade Isles AL content, I believe, yep. right? That's absolutely true. All right. So tell me about the Defenders of the Earth Mother. So, you know, these are the people that revere the Earth Mother. Uh, they are led by the Druids. Um, these are mostly people that go about their normal lives, but in their normal lives, they're always dealing with nature, whether it's farming or, uh, you know, shepherding or, you know, whatever, their life is made through nature. So therefore they are going to defend the earth mother in any way possible because unlike other deities in the forgotten realms, the earth mother does not act. The earth mother carries out her wishes through her followers. So every member of the defenders of the earth mother are essentially the earth mother. And they do what they do in her name. And without them, the Earth Mother does not survive or flourish. And therefore, nature does not survive or flourish. That makes perfect sense to me. I mean, I love me some Earth Mother. I like a lot of the lore behind it. So, I mean, if I was playing, I would probably try to be a defender of the Earth Mother. Mm Mm-hmm. Uh, let's talk about the Harbingers of Liberation. So these are mainly consisting of Northlanders, and this group, they're dedicated to freedom above everything else. Uh, those who govern should do so through acquiescence of the governed. When a leader loses faith, the faith of their people, those leaders need to be replaced or disposed. I didn't get to re- read this section of the book. I, uh, I, I know that you probably know a lot more about it than I do. Is this like Astrid's deal? Like, is she in charge of this stuff? This is exactly what Astrid is, is all about. So, you know, for her, it's the going back to her ancestors and their raiding and their pillaging. Um, it's just a part of life and you don't have to murder you when you do this, but you are then free to act in your own best interest. So that's where, where she is right now. And she does lead Northlanders, but she doesn't lead them as a political leader. She leads them as kind of an adventurer. Yeah. It's like a war band, right? Like a, like a Viking war band. Yep. So, you know, the harbors of liberation span the, the moon chase so they can exist anywhere, but they're always on the lookout for, someone using political power to repress others that makes perfect sense yep uh, let's talk about the initiates of the flame this one's fascinating to me because it looks like it has something to do with the the wizard flamsterd yep so you know this we talked about the last time we talked about the moonshiles we talked about flamsterd and what this group came sprang from was his apprentices um who understood that there was a balance in the world that needed to be maintained. And if the world gets out of balance, then 
bad things begin to happen. And the balance we're talking about is mostly between good and evil. And so they think of, if you're thinking of it in terms of alignment, think of it as lawful neutral. Things need to remain in balance. Things need to remain steady. And it may seem cruel or unfeeling to to do some of the things that you need to do to maintain that balance, but it becomes necessary in the long run. That makes perfect sense to me. I kind of like it. And those apprentices, though, they were problematic in a lot of ways. So it's interesting that there's like a philosophy that came from them that isn't necessarily like just, you know, completely destructive. Yeah, it's it's very... It's very nuanced, and I would suggest reading the whole Initiates of the Flame um, page in the in the campaign guide to get the full feel of of what they're trying to do. Uh, let's talk about the Kendrick loyalists now. So the High Kings and Queens of House Kendrick rule most or all the Moonshades for centuries. It's they believe that only under their stewardship that peace and harmony will reign. And um, like this this group, it's interesting because like if honor and duty are among your ideals, you should be a part of them. Um, if you want to build or be a part of a strong and vibrant kingdom on the moon chase, you should join them. And they have a very interesting set of goals that are um, at, at once good and also very personal to House Kendrick, right? It, we actually talked a little bit about it earlier when we were talking about uh, High King Diedrich. Like they want – this group wants the leadership of all the islands to rec- recognize the primacy of the high king. So like the high king's important and rules this deal. Like that's the whole, what's one of their big, their big goals, right? Right. Yeah. And then of course, another goal that they have is go and recover Karakor well and other lost lands from the Fey of Seraphal. Mm-hmm. So that's, that used to be the seat of power. So go get it back and make it ours again. Yep. And then the last part is go get the kid back. Go get my son. Because once they get the son back, then they can start to try to drive off these Omnian influences and bring Snowden back under the control of uh, House Kendrick. See, now that would be a very interesting campaign to me. Like the first part of it is go get the kid back. And then the second part of it is part of it is the war against Lady Eliza. Yeah, you know, that would be great at any tier because there's lots of different things you could do. It could be low level, just, you know, recovering um, the sun some sort of espionage, you know, going into businesses, finding out rumors, where is he? Then at the higher levels, then you're dealing with that war. Then you're dealing with, you know, major battles with group, a group with a lot of resources. Yeah. And not only that, but you, you come to find out that like, you're not just fighting, um, you're fighting undead. Um, exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Or special forces are going to be undead. So, yep. Uh, next one, the Moonshade Trade League. Why don't you tell me about this one? Well, so this is the idea that that the Moonshade Isles would benefit from trade with cities other than Am. So, you know, they want to create these business ties with Baldur's Gate, with Waterdeep, with Luskin, with the, the cities on the Sword Coast in the north that can... You know, that you can trade with and, and get some more, um, an advanced technology civilization coming to the moon chase. Um, and so they aren't necessarily evil, but they are definitely in, a, in a contradiction to the defenders of the earth mother who want to keep all that vestiges of advanced civilization out because not much good comes from that. All you get from that is more 
resources being depleted too quickly. Well, there are a bunch of capitalists that don't want to be as cutthroat as Lady Eliza. Pretty much that's the case, yes. So if your character is a merchant, if your character, you know, is from is from the Sword Coast and likes Waterdeep and wants to, you know, maintain those ties, that's the organization that they're going to be in. That makes uh, that makes sense. It's it's a weird one for this setting, right? Like it makes sense that it's in the setting because of the the Om mm-hmm. presence, but it's also weird to play. I feel like being a hero and playing a character from that is very tricky. But it's it could be a neat story to tell, right? It is tricky, but if if the main brunt of your campaign is going to be against pirates, then you have a natural enemy right there. Oh, that's true because it's about like making sure the trade routes stay open and such. Yes. Yeah, that's interesting then. All right, uh, let's talk about the Seraphil Faithful. So the Faithful believe that the Fair are a natural and acceptable part of the Moonchase. Based on our previous statement, that's obviously incorrect. Mm-hmm. Well, it's incorrect to a certain you know, section of the population. So they seek to bridge the divides between the mortal inhabitants of the Moonchase and the returning Fae who have come to dominate Gwyneth. And they think that Seraphil is a, uh, a rightful realm in the Moonchase and work to promote its peaceful integration with the other powers of the Isles. Mm-hmm. I don't know why they would need to protect the Ser- the Fae of uh, of the the of Seraphel because as far as I can tell the Seraphel are pretty good at protecting themselves and kicking everybody's butt all over the place. Right. So the characters that join this organization are probably the elves of Seraphel or people that that have come from Seraphel or have lived in in the Seraphel area long enough to associate with the the Fae that rule here. Yeah, I mean, because you know, why not? If you're gonna if you're gonna join somebody, why not join a winner, right? Exactly. <laughs> uh, it, it's it's interesting. Like, I feel like they're um, if you're if you're a part of this group, you end up getting tied into the whole story with Lady Ordolf mm-hmm. and the and the stuff with the howling disease and whatnot. It's a little bit more on that epic storytelling scale, right? Yep. And instead of having to like work your way into it, you just kind of start with that. That's your leader. Um, and that's what you believe, and that's who you're going to be loyal to. Mm-hmm. Uh, last one, the Wardens of the Deep Shays. Want to tell me about this one? Yeah. So for especially for dwarven characters or characters that come from an underground environment, um, the worries of the surface world are secondary to what's happening uh, on the surface of – I'm sorry. The worries of the surface world are secondary to what's happening beneath the moon shays. Um, the Wardens of the Deep Shays – really believe that this darkness that's coming, that's been predicted to come to the Moonshine Isles, is going to happen from the ground up. So they think that all these resources um, that are being wasted on the surface need to be moved underground because the the Dark Fae and other creatures of the Underdark are going to be the tip of the spear, as it were, in the fight for and against the evil in the moon chase. Yeah. And there's a really good trilogy of adventures that sort of introduces you to the creation and beginning of the wardens of the deep chase. I ran it at Gen Con. So like, I forget, which one was that Sean? You wrote one of the adventures. Yeah, it was, it's the third trilogy. So the moon three trilogy. It's good. It's really good. I really enjoy it. It's a, it's a really good little trilogy. Like it, it's a very good complete adventure. Yep, and that will be coming out probably in the late fall, early winter uh, of this year. Very nice. 
Um, so those are the player organizations that you can join and also the ones as part of the AL campaign and also just to pick up the book and use them as part of your Moonshade campaign. Like there's a really – there's a ton of good stuff in the Moonshades for a campaign. Like you can play all sorts of good stuff in, in this part of the setting. Yep. You can really tailor it to whatever kind of campaign you want to run. There's something there for you. I think it's a really good – look at how to kind of build a gazetteer these days, right? Like mm-hmm. it's only about, uh, it's a 57 pages. It, it gives you a whole campaign setting and you can have a lot of fun with it. Yep. Um, so why don't you tell me about the Moonshades, your final thoughts on them? Well, my, my thoughts are just this. For me, the Moonshades have always, has always been the Earth Mother versus everything else because the Earth Mother is is nature, is the Earth. Um, so whether you're talking about the folk versus the Northlanders or the fae coming from Seraphel, the Fomorians, Lycanthropes, the Giants, or whatever, it's always a story of this balance versus the imbalance. Um, whether the world uh, should be just as it is versus all the corruption that other people or other things bring to it. And so nature can always be red in tooth and claw, as the poem says, but it just needs to stay in balance. So that's where I always, whenever I run a campaign in the, in the Moonshine Isles, that's, that's the main theme I always go with. And then there can be, uh, arguments about what's balanced and what's not. But as long as you leave that argument with the characters and not with the players, then you've got a cool, um, ethical dilemma for your, your characters right from the start. Yeah. And then they can make choices based on that. You can have these neat little, um, social conversations in game and in character that lead to actions that, that play out during the course of the game. Mm-hmm. I'm, I'm, I'm with you. Like, I, that's what I think, but I, I already kind of said my, my little piece, like how really interestingly diverse this setting is and how they did it in 57 pages. Yep. And they have all sorts of cool stuff that you can play with and things you can do and storylines that are there that can be utilized. Mm hmm. But with that, I guess I will say, everyone, thanks so much for listening, and I hope you enjoyed our uh, our second part of our Moonshay Isles uh, review, recap, discussion. I guess that's the best way to put it. Mm-hmm. Before we get out of here, let's do a few Patreon shoutouts. Uh, JJ Lanza, James Sweetland, Jim Pixelscape Scange, Brandon Barnes, Troy Sandlin, Blake Ryan, Batman, Corey Johnson, Will Doyle, the Mad Wizard himself, Sean Merwin, Zach Goins from A Bite of D&D, uh, uh, v. Waxberg, uh, Miko Froelich, Andrew Dacey, Cindy Moore, Tabletop Gaming Deals, Effie Madison, The Suicide Pixie, The Old School DM, Randy Farmer, Kevin Minorzak, Victor Wyatt, Chris Constantine, and Eric Simon. And speaking of patrons, if you'd like to be a patron of Down With D&D, you can click on the link to our Patreon page on the website, and for $2 a month, you can get yourself a shout-out like you just heard. Or for $4 a month, you not only get a shout-out, but you also get to see our pre-production show notes and access to our Slack room for life. Mm-hmm. If you can't help us out monetarily, but you want to give us a boost, you can do so with an Apple Podcast review. Those reviews on Apple Podcasts help because many other podcatchers use Apple Podcasts as their way to rate and rank shows. And so a five-star review would help make us more visible and spread the gospel of Down With D&D. I also forgot to mention that for $4 a month, you can get access to our Slack room for life, which is a really cool place where you can just talk right to us. In fact, I'm there a lot more than I am anywhere else because I almost always have Slack around so if you ever want to chat with me and sean's there usually a lot too so like if you want to chat with either of us that's the best way to get a hold of us absolutely yeah tag me on the slack for life and i will be there in a moment mm-hmm. um sean where can we find you on the internet uh, you can find me on twitter at sean merwin or on the down with D G plus community and now you can also talk to me as the mad wizard at menagerie wizard on twitter 
There you go. You can hit me up at Misdirected Mark. That is the network Twitter and the show Twitter for the most part. We don't really use the Down with D&D one anymore. Um, or you can go to the website where you can catch other great shows such as this one. Bone, Stone, and Obsidian. Wayne and Robert take monthly deep dives into the Dark Sun setting and discuss it across all editions of D&D. Down with D&D is a Misdirected Mark production, the media arm of Encoded Designs. So, Mr. Mad Wizard Merwin, what are we going to do now? We are going to go kill some Moonshay monsters. Get down with D&D. Yeah, you know me. 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 I'm down with D&D. Yeah, you know me. Who's down with D&D? Yeah, you know me.